Okay. Y'all know where we're going to be. First Timothy. How's everyone doing? Pretty good. Okay. Staying somewhat dry a little bit. I heard that you know we got a bunch of rain, obviously a little bit down south. I heard y'all got a bunch here also. And so hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get just a little bit more, just enough, and then the rain will cease. Lord, that's, that's what we're hoping for. But First um, Timothy chapter 1, uh, we've been studying, looking at this letter. It's a letter instructing Timothy. It's written by Paul. And he's specifically instructing him in order to lead the church of Ephesus, to be a pastor, a faithful pastor. So we're studying Timothy and saying, okay, what instructions can we take from this as a church while Paul is instructing this pastor on how to lead the church? We can take these instructions and say, if this is what the pastor ought to do, then we can kind of absorb that and say, okay, well, let's just go ahead and bypass Timothy and just learn from Paul and say, well, Paul, what is it we should be focused on? So that's what we've been looking at. We looked at uh, the greeting a little bit. We looked at the instruction to Timothy to protect the church's doctrine and the church's devotion. And then last week, we kind of expounded on this doctrine a little bit, starting in verse 8 and going through 11. We kind of unpacked that a little bit more. And we saw that the law is good so long as it's used lawfully. So there's a right way to use the law. There's a wrong way to use the law. I would even say there's a right and wrong way to use proper doctrine. Sometimes we may have right belief, but we're not applying it in the right way, which I think refers back to do we really properly understand it. But he kind of unpacked doctrine a little bit. And so this week, we're going to pick up in verse 12, and we're going to go through the end of chapter 1 uh, through verse 20, and we're going to start to break down this devotion a little bit. So I'm going to uh, start reading. I'll read um, 12 through 20, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll get started. Uh, so 1 Timothy 1:12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, tonight we are coming to you reading from your holy word, asking, begging you, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate your word in our hearts, that you would not allow us to see but not see and to hear but not hear. Father, would you give us spiritual eyes and ears to see and to hear and to behold wondrous things from your law. We love you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
Okay, so what I'm going to do is, as we kind of go through this, we're going to go through the verses a little out of order, and I'll explain why as we're studying through them. So hopefully you've got your Bibles opened here, you're ready to kind of jump around through these verses as I point them out to you. I'd like to show you, he's going to kind of lay this foundation of doctrine. He's going to apply the doctrine we've already looked at, and then what's going to flow out of that doctrine is devotion, and it's going to manifest itself in four different ways. Okay, so if you're note taking, you're like the number ahead of time. There's the one, two, three, four. We'll get to that in a minute. So I want to start off with kind of the main idea that Paul is going to um, base his devotion on here in verse 15. He says, "The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." So this phrase, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. A version of this phrase, or this exact phrase, occurs five times in the New Testament, and they are all in these three pastoral epistles, nowhere else. So when Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and then to Titus, that's where we see this phrase, and it's similar to when, if you're reading in the book of John or some of the other Gospels, Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, and that just means what I'm about to say is really important. That's exactly what this is. And of these five times that this phrase is listed in these three books here, one of them is here, Uh, the next one is in chapter 3 of this letter, we'll look at that whenever we get there, chapter 4 of this letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in Titus chapter 3. Of these five times, four of the five times this phrase is used, it's used in the middle of a conversation about salvation and the good works that flow from it. I'm going to explain why that's important here in just a sec. I want to read these excerpts from you. Um, we'll look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 when we get there. That's the one of the five that this does not apply to. So 1 Timothy 4.9 says this. <clears throat> I'm actually going to back up a little bit to verse uh, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So it's in the context of believing and then living for godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, it's in verse 11. But I'm going to uh, back up to verse 10. Actually, I'm, I'm going to back up to, to verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, has preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. He also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So again, in the context of this salvation and then this good works that follow. In uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 8 is the final one. 
And uh, I am going to start right there in that verse. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So it seems like Paul, in these pastoral epistles, every time he uses this, hey, what I'm about to say is really important. It's always in this context of we are saved and then we are engaging in a work. Really important to keep that in the back of our minds as we look at, a, at the occurrence here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Knowing that, that that's how he typically uses this phrase, let's look at this again. What is this important phrase? What is this important teaching? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is really important to understand how Paul is thinking about his salvation. He describes himself as the foremost sinner. He also, if you back up to verse 13, look at some of these phrases with me. Uh, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Uh, Further down in the verse there, uh, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul is not ashamed of his sinfulness. He says, I am the, some of your translations may say, the chief sinner. I am the sinner above every other sinner is what he's saying. And I think this is important because that's not typically how we view our own sin. A lot of times we are tricked into thinking someone else's sin is worse than my sin. Someone else is in a worse off position than I am because I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven of my sin. But Paul straight up says right here, To save sinners, not of whom I was the foremost, of whom I am the foremost. So he recognizes his sinfulness. And I want to read to you. You can turn there and follow along if you'd like. I want to read to you a parable from Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 48. The event here actually happened, but he gives a parable. He's in this, um, this Pharisee's house. And he's reclining, and this lady comes in who's a sinful woman, and she's like washing Jesus' feet. And Jesus takes this opportunity to be instructive because they're sitting around looking at this woman. Everyone knows what kind of woman this is, and they think, doesn't Jesus know what kind of woman this is that's washing his feet? And so he takes the opportunity and says, "Um, Simon, I have something to say to you in verse 40. And Simon answers, say it, teacher. So listen to this, verses 41 through 48. Jesus tells this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman... He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. It's easy to miss a really crucial detail in this parable. In the parable that Jesus tells, there's two people that owe a debt. One person's debt is great. One's person debt, one person's debt is not so great. Both debts are forgiven. Jesus is using this to teach a spiritual point. Okay? He's using this to teach a point. The point is we respond differently based on the amount of debt that we see that we are forgiven. But here's the important thing that it's important not to overlook here. In reality, that's a parable used to make a point. In reality, we all owe the same debt. We all owe the same spiritual debt. There's not some of us that owe a sin debt of $100 million and then others that only owe a spiritual sin debt of $10 million. That, That's not how that works. We all have the same spiritual debt. So the problem with Simon and this woman is not the amount of sin in their lives and how much they've actually been forgiven. The problem is how they perceive their sin. The woman perceived, I am the worst sinner. I, I am completely undeserving of Jesus. So what did that cause her to do? She got down at his feet and she wept and wiped her feet with whatever she had. She anointed his feet with whatever she had. But then you've got these self-righteous Pharisees that say, that's beneath me to act like that. If you had known who was in your house and how much sin you had in your life, you would have acted that way too. But you don't realize it. And that's what's important to see about Paul here in 1 Timothy. He recognizes, I am the foremost sinner. In reality, we all have sin. But in Paul's mind, he's not going to diminish his sin out of pride or embarrassment. Sometimes we try to minimize our sinfulness and we say, well, I'm, you know, I'm actually a pretty good person and then I became a Christian. The problem is that when we minimize our sin, we minimize our need for mercy. And when we minimize our need for mercy, we minimize God's gift of grace to us. We say, I really don't need, I'm not really that bad of a person. God, I don't need as much mercy as that other guy does. God's grace needed for me was only this much. We do that because we're embarrassed. We want to appear a certain way. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be like this holy person. I can't let people see that I'm a sinner just like everyone else. People need to think I'm perfect. When the world thinks we're perfect, they're not going to think they can come to Christ. It's kind of like the trap on social media. You scroll through your social media feed, you see all these happy pictures of everyone's family, and they're all, you know, it's all great. And you don't see behind the scenes where they're just as messed up as everyone else. And it's the same thing here. Imagine owing a debt to someone, so a friend steps in to pay your debt. So you're bragging and bragging about how generous this friend is to everyone and how they stuck their neck out for you and you were in a pinch and they said, you know what, 
I am never going to let anyone suffer harm for this. I tell you what, I'm covering your debt. You're telling everybody. It's great. Greatest news ever. And so someone comes up to you and they say, is this really happened? You're like, yes, it's great. And, and I'm telling you, they look out for everyone. They love everyone. It's so great. How, how big was your debt? Seven bucks. Seven bucks. Okay? I want you to imagine now the person that asked you, how big was your debt? Imagine that, that they had a debt of $500,000. It was due immediately, or else they were going to be put away for life. And then they hear you bragging about this good news, and they come to you hopeful, maybe if your debt's forgiven, my debt can be forgiven. And then they say, well, how how big was your debt? Seven bucks. Can you imagine the letdown that that person must experience? Just let that sink in. We unintentionally, I don't think we do this on purpose, we unintentionally dash the hopes of non-believers for forgiveness when we paint a picture that we are not as bad of a sinner as other people. I've had students that come up to me, graduate, instead of going to college, one girl in particular, She didn't want to live at home with her dad anymore, a bad home situation. So she stayed with whoever would give her a free place to stay. It was some bad apartments in a part of town you don't want to be. She called me, and she said, Garrett, yeah, you know, it's not a good situation. I'm like, well, why don't you just get out of there? Well, I'm not going back home. I understand that, but, and I'm talking with her. She's not a Christian. She recognizes it. And she knows that I recognize it. And so we sit down and talk. And she gets to a point where she's recognizing her sin. She knows she needs to be forgiven. She knows that her decision making is leading her down this path. I'm like, Kristen, why don't you just, why don't you just turn to the Lord? She says this, well, I just need to clean up first before I come to him. Why do you think that? You know you don't need to, I know, but I'm not like all of you. I'm not like all of you. We are exactly the same. We are all the foremost of sinners. That is the gospel. So, I hang out so much on that because that point is going to provide the foundation for this entire paragraph. That's the doctrine, okay? So, verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason. And we see this idea right here, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So this repeated word, foremost, in the foremost of my sin, Jesus is on display as patient. This is critical. People will be more likely to think that they can approach Jesus if they better understand why you approached Jesus. Why did you, this is for everyone in here, why did you approach Jesus? 
Is it because you recognize, like Paul, I'm the foremost of sinners and I need mercy? The rest of the world can relate to that. Is it just because, well, I grew up in church and that's just what we do? Not everyone else can relate with that. It's not to say that that isn't a genuine decision. But the rest of the world isn't going to see their need for Jesus if you don't explain your need for Jesus. I don't need Jesus because I go to church. I need Jesus because I'm a sinner. And that's all of us. And that's what, that's what Paul says. So they are going to trust us when we say I have a solution if they see that we have a shared problem. So what's the solution? Now we come back up to verse 12, looking from verses 12 to verse 14. I'm going to hit this out of order, so just kind of look at those few verses here. And I want to point out what the solution is. So our problem is that we act ignorantly in unbelief. Look in verse 13. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, um, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Then we see Jesus gives us grace, mercy, faith, and love. We see here in verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So though I live in unbelief, Jesus offers me forgiveness. And the result of that when I come to Christ is right here in verse 12. I thank Him, God, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful. Paul wasn't faithful. He was a blasphemer. He was a murderer. Why is he judged faithful? He's judged faithful as a gift. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's faith and love come from God. Paul doesn't have faith because he gets it and everyone else doesn't. He didn't get it. He was faithless. He was on the road to kill more Christians whenever God miraculously revealed himself to him. It's a gift. So even in our trusting God, we have to recognize that even that comes from God. All of it comes from God. God is magnified in us when we display our need for Him. Notice, He thanks God because He gives me strength. God gives me strength. God judges me faithful. God gives me grace. God gives me mercy. God displays His patience through me. In all of this, Paul believes and wants us to see that the more credit we give ourselves for our salvation, the less credit God receives. But when I admit I am the foremost of sinners, this phrase, Jesus Christ reveals his patience through me to others. The world doesn't need to see perfect Christians. The world needs to see desperate Christians. God, I'm not perfect, but I desperately need your forgiveness. And then what flows Out of that is our devotion. That's the doctrine. That's the foundation. Now let's look at the devotion that flows out of that. Four signs I'm going to give you of proper devotion that we see here in this passage from Paul. Number one, 
the first sign of proper devotion is thanking God. Thanking God. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He thanks God because God judged him faithful. Our thankfulness to God flows from our understanding that we need him. If we don't think we need God, we're not going to be thankful whenever God gives himself to us. Okay? The other day, Gabriel did something. He talked back to Stacy, I think is what it was. And so we disciplined him. And he did not appreciate the discipline. And I love that my wife, she used a phrase, I love. She said, Gabriel, I love you too much to allow you to get away with this. She disciplined him. That discipline is a gift. Gabriel doesn't recognize it as a gift. So he does not appreciate the discipline. Over 30 years, not over, 30, a little under 30 years ago, when I received discipline, I didn't appreciate that discipline. I didn't realize I needed it. Now looking back, I'm grateful that my parents disciplined me. And it's the same thing here. We, we don't thank God the way we ought to sometimes because we don't recognize how much we need that forgiveness and that mercy. The more desperate we are for God, the more thankful we are going to be. And that won't happen if we keep minimizing our sin. So number one, four signs of proper devotion. Number one is thanking God. Number two is praising God. So we looked at these verses. I want to skip to the end now to verse 17. At the end of all of this, Paul ends with this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, God, you are the king. You are eternal. You are unlimited by space and time. You are the only almighty, immaterial God of all things who accomplishes all your holy will. You are infinitely worthy of honor. You are glorious. When Paul says this, it is stemming from a desperate dependence upon God. He is desperate for God. He feels it. And so these things flow out of him. One thing I love, I did not grow up Southern Baptist. I've been to, I've been to countless denominations. I wound up in a Southern Baptist church because as I visited Southern Baptist churches and attended Southern Baptist institutions and read books written by Southern Baptists, and I see the doctrine that's coming from these places, I say, that's what the Bible teaches. That's great. So here I am, Southern Baptist. That ever changes, then that will change as well. So far it hadn't happened. Okay. In the midst of all of that, I have been to churches that have terrible doctrine. I've been to churches that have great doctrine. And one interesting trend I've noticed, there are some churches that have some pretty shaky doctrine, but those people are passionate about loving Jesus. Very emotion-filled people. So then you come to the Southern Baptist Church, for whatever reason this is, I still have not figured it out quite, whose doctrine I think is spot on. I think we got it. Okay, No one's perfect, but 
we got to be getting it close. I mean, it seems right. But then it's dead. In our singing, we have this monotone recitation of words. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, okay? We should feel, we should feel when we sing praises to God. I'm not advocating turning this room into a track. Okay? I'm not advocating dancing while singing. I'm saying we need to feel what we are singing. And if you don't feel the words that you're singing, something is wrong. There's something you don't quite get. Maybe you don't get how big your debt really is. Maybe you don't get the immense gravity of God's grace for your sin. So, thanking God, praising God. I wonder and hope sometimes before I leave this that this doesn't mean that we lack dependence and desperation for God in our churches. Something to chew on. Number three. So the first two, thanking God, praising God, signs of proper devotion. Number three, fighting for God. Look at verse 18. I put this in because it kind of continues with the message. Sums up chapter one before we kick off chapter two. And he tells Timothy, in light of all of this, I give you this charge, the charge to protect doctrine and devotion. To you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Church does not exist for us to sit and absorb, but to serve and give. This place does not exist so that we have a place to go and sit down for two days a week and hear good teaching. I hope that you feel like you're hearing good teaching. But that's not why this exists. The good teaching spurs us on to good works, which God prepares beforehand for us to walk in. The church is a ministry hub. We are designed to do battle here. We are preparing ourselves and equipping ourselves to go out and do battle. And to bring people here to engage in spiritual battle with them. We want the Lord to win them over. We are called to prepare for battle and to engage in battle. The word warfare is such a sharp word. But that's the word he uses. This is warfare. So two questions for us to ponder as we think about these things. Am I fighting for God? Do I see that sign of devotion in my life? Two questions we can ask are, number one, are you preparing for battle? Not just on Sundays and Wednesdays. During the week, I had some students that were in discipleship at one point. Good, I have a couple minutes. They were in discipleship, and one of the challenges I gave to them, I said, okay, guys, look, for this week, um, here's what I want you to do. I want everyone to get a sheet of paper, okay? And I want you to write down one question that you're afraid a non-believer is going to ask you. I want to help equip you to answer these questions. 
Okay, that's about how I phrased it. One question you're afraid someone's going to ask you and you're not going to know what to say. So they all sat and thought about it. They wrote something down. They all got their questions and they think, okay, Garrett's going to help us to blow these guys out of the water. I was like, great, excellent. Okay, everyone got their question? Great, okay. Let me see them. Wrote them all down so no one can cheat. I've learned student ministry, okay? Wrote them all down, good. I've got your questions. Here's your job. Find the answer to this question. You have till next Sunday. So they're like, you're not going to give us the answer? Nope. You're going to give me the answer. So I went home, got on Google, like every brilliant teenager does. <laughs> get on Google, type in their question, look up, and they see different answers. So then they have to get the scriptures that they used, and they had to look at it, and they had to say, well, which one is right? And then they had to answer the question for me the next Sunday. Come back and I'm like, here, this is awesome. Like, look what I learned. This is this. I'm like, Great. Now do this the rest of your life. Are we doing that? Do you have a goal in your mind? This is what I need to do next to prepare. Or do we have this mentality, "Eh, I'll just prepare on Sundays and Wednesdays and that's it. We need to be actively preparing. And then the second question is, are you engaging in warfare? Maybe you're prepared and you're all ready and everything is ready to go. Tomorrow. Tomorrow never gets here. We need to engage now. Okay? So something for us to think on. Four signs of proper devotion. Thanking God, praising God, fighting for God. Here's the last one that I see here in verses 19 and 20. Clinging to God. He tells him, tells Timothy, I give you this charge in accordance with these prophecies made about you that you would carry out this charge and fight the good warfare. How does that happen? Verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So there's two reactions to all of this. On the one hand, there's holding faith and a good conscience. Then on the other hand, there is rejecting this charge to protect doctrine and devotion. One response, I will protect doctrine and devotion. The other one, not that important. Well, we see what happens here. These two guys that are mentioned, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they are actually both mentioned in 2 Timothy as well. So apparently they were handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme, but they didn't learn their lesson. They continue. And what we read about Hymenaeus and Alexander, you can go look at this later in 2 Timothy, Hymenaeus is persuading people that the resurrection's already happened. Hey, you're still here? You missed it. And he's giving them instructions on how to live in a post-resurrection life. Sorry, you missed it. And it's upsetting people who think that they're believers. Alexander does some kind of harm to Paul, and it says that he opposes his message. We would look at these guys and be like, they're not even Christian. That is, that is whack. They've made a shipwreck of their faith because they have opposed this charge. They've rejected this charge to protect their doctrine and their devotion. When we reject sound doctrine and proper devotion, we embrace something that is not Christian. The one whose doctrine is spot on but doesn't cling to Christ doesn't quite get it. Jesus is your life. He's my life. He's everything. 
if Jesus is not the center of your universe, you don't get it. If you get it, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I would be nothing without Christ. None of us would be. So like Paul, don't think, well, I need to be more devoted, you know. So I guess I need to start singing louder. The answer, the answer isn't singing louder. The answer isn't fighting more. The answer is being desperate for God. That's it. If you don't see these signs, you might not be desperate enough for God. This is a time for us to get on our knees and our faces and say, God, I need you to make me desperate for you. I I have been running from you and hiding my sin. I haven't been confessing my sin. I know I'm forgiven, but I, I haven't been admitting these things. When we are desperate for the Lord, the rest of the world will see that and it will be contagious. So let's protect our doctrine and our devotion. Let's fight. Let's prepare. Praise. Thank. Let's cling to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that there is a dangerous trend in our churches sometimes where we run from precise doctrine and theological words. We think that these things divide us when really what we're seeing in your word is that by rejecting this, we are shipwrecking our faith. Father, we want to think about you rightly. We don't want to take credit from you for our salvation. We want you to be magnified in us. We want people to see that we were desperate in our need for you and that you stepped in to pay a debt that we owed that we could never repay ourselves. Father, we want to be passionately thankful for you. We want to be praising you every day because of your mercy. We want to engage in battle for you, fighting the good fight of faith. Father, we want to cling to you. And we know that this won't happen until we are desperate for you. So Father, would you tear our hearts, cause us to be desperately dependent upon you for all things. We thank you for this letter to Timothy that you wrote through your servant Paul. We ask that you would bury these words deep in our heart, cause it to produce fruit in our lives, so that you would receive the honor and glory and not us. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.